standing in the power of Christ this morning? Wow, that was a big response. (laughs) Well, I hope you are. And let me tell you why. Because we are about to embark upon a series in spiritual warfare. I'll guarantee you right now, if you're not standing in the power of Christ, you're going to wish you had been by the time we're through. Because you don't start a series like this and you don't talk about the devil like we're going to talk about him today and not face the possibility of attack. I've already asked many people for prayer as we begin this. Hopefully you got an email if you're on the prayer chain to pray for me and for our staff during this time. We're praying for you as well. And that's why we've entitled this series, No Sympathy for the Devil. Because we don't have any. Unlike Mick Jagger. February 26, 1974 edition of Insight told the story of Major William Martin, a British subject who is buried on the southern coast of Spain. Martin never knew the great contribution that he made to the Allied success in the Second World War, especially in Sicily. Because he died of pneumonia in the foggy dampness of England before he ever saw saw the battlefront. The Allies had invaded North Africa and the next logical step was Sicily. And knowing the Germans calculated this, the Allies determined to outfox them. And one dark night an Allied submarine came to the surface just off the coast of Spain and put Major William Martin's body out to sea in a rubber raft with an oar. In his pocket were secret documents indicating that the Allied forces would strike next in Greece and Sardinia. Major Martin's body washed ashore and Axis intelligence operatives soon found him thinking he had crashed at sea. They passed the secret documents through Axis hands all the way to Hitler's headquarters And so while Allied forces moved towards Sicily, thousands and thousands of German troops moved to Greece and Sardinia, where the battle wasn't being waged. Now, I tell you that, and I open this message with that story because I want to tell you right at the start that Satan works with more cunning than even the Allied plan. He'll get us to fight many temptations in places where the real battle isn't. But often the temptations that hurt us the most are where we least expect them. There are two people who want you today. The Savior and Satan. Sad truth is that Satan already has the non-believing world in his subtle control. And if you think I'm just being dramatic, I'd like you to read 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 sometime this week, which says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, referring to the non-believing world. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I need to remind you that Satan also desires to have you as well. 
While we can rest upon the fact that he can never again lay claim to a true believer's soul because of his or her blood-bought status in Christ, we just sang about it in that great modern hymn. He wants desperately to tear Christ's followers apart in order to render them inoperable. Make no mistake about it. Even though you may be a Christian, Satan still wants you. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 22 for a moment and look at verse 31 with me. Luke 22 and verse 31. Jesus is speaking and he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, although this isn't our text for the, for the day today, we need to begin here. Why? Because I want you to be familiar with two very significant things, characteristics about our enemy the first thing I want you to notice in this text is Satan's desire. First part of verse 31. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Luke uses a very strong word here when he says demanded permission, indicating that Satan earnestly desires and that he has earnestly begged permission to have not only Peter, mind you, but all the disciples. The first you in this verse is plural, meaning all the disciples. Why? Satan wants to shake every active follower and proclaimer of the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior so violently that we lose our voice, we lose our assurance of faith, and we begin to doubt God, abandon his will for our lives, and lose our impact on the world around us. That's his desire. Even though he knows he can't have us eternally, he certainly can disable, distract, and debilitate us in the here and now, can't he? And therefore disrupt the accomplishment of God's kingdom purposes. The second thing I want you to notice about this verse is Satan's design. It says here that he has demanded permission to sift us like wheat or to sift the disciples like wheat. Satan knows that although he may not have a chance at Peter's soul here, he certainly could discredit his status, right? in the eyes of others. So his design is to sift him as wheat and the image pictures this violent shaking. That's how wheat was separated from chaff. Grain was shaken in a sieve and the grain remained in the fan and the dust was thrown off. In other words, there was this separation that took place through a violent shaking. And Jesus was warning Peter here that Satan desires to tear him apart. How would you like to have that told to you? Jesus is telling Peter, Satan desires to shake your faith so violently that he won't, you won't be able to function. And he attempted to do this after Peter's denial of Christ. 
And he used the same tactics centuries before by attempting to materially, emotionally, and physically destroy Job. Remember that? He shook David to the core during his adulterous and murderous relationship with Bathsheba. He wants to do the same thing to us. Shake us. He wants to tear us down one spiritual brick at a time, violently shattering us to the point where we can no longer function by faith. Now the danger is, is that we often do not recognize his strategy in all of this. Too often we only see him working in the obvious places and we forget that he's crafty and that he is a deceptive tempter. One not easily recognized. We should not be ignorant of his schemes. Satan is continually striving to become more and more seductive, especially with believers. You believe that? Because he knows we're looking for him. At least we should be. He's not going to attack us head on most of the time when we're prepared for him. Satan may be many things, mind you, but he's certainly not stupid. He's going to weaken us by hitting us from every subtle angle imaginable and he will linger almost passively for a long time and then at the point when we are the weakest, he will spring, grab us and shake us so violently that we come apart. What we need is a better understanding of how he works, what his strategies are. What are the things we need to be aware of in order to stand firm against him? These are the things which we must be seriously concerned with. That's why Jesus warned Peter here in Luke chapter 22. That's also why Peter, later in his ministry, matter of fact, in the same chapter that I read to you, when I talked about what an elder's responsibility is, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter saw a need to warn us in that passage. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. The Living Bible gets right to the heart of it, states it like this, be careful, watch out for attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion looking for some victim to tear apart. Stand firm when he attacks. Trust the Lord and remember that other Christians all around the world are going through these sufferings too. Now Peter knew from experience how imperative this is to us. So he says, wake up, get serious about your enemy because he wants you, but Peter goes on, resist him. Resist him. But before we can resist him, we need to understand something about him, something about his methods. We must understand that our enemy is extremely strategic in his seductions. And the best place, I think, to begin to discover how this enemy seeks to ruin us, in my opinion, is in the account of his attempt to destroy and disrupt the life and ministry of Jesus himself. So I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, if you would. Matthew chapter 4. That's where we're going to camp out for a little while. Verses 1 to 11. Now there's no doubt about it. Satan's seductions are cunning and they are very strategically placed. 
One of the first things we need to understand about this, his seductive strategy is that his timing, his timing is selective. It's very selective. Look with me at the first two verses of this chapter. Chapter 4 of Matthew, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Let's back up a little bit, get a little context of what's going on, okay? Back up to chapter 3 and verse 13. Let's look and see what happens. Matthew writes, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have, no, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, here in this text that I just read to you is one of the most beautiful and powerful evidences of the Trinity in the entire Bible. Amen? I mean, God the Father speaks audibly from heaven and indicates his intense love and profound pleasure in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now we're introduced to God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending upon Jesus to anoint and empower him for the ministry he's about to embark upon, which will eventually impact the entire world for all time. And we come face to face with Jesus Christ the Son in a physical form, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All creation is seen under the authority of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this text. And in verse 17, the father expresses his extreme pleasure in his son Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Why was he pleased? Why do you think he was pleased? Remember a couple of messages ago, we talked about what pleases the father, right? Because he was doing the father's will. He always did the father's will. You want to please the Father? You want to please God? Find out what He wants you to do and determine to do it. So many times you hear people say, it's so hard to know what to do. Listen, friends, let's be honest with each other. For the most part, you and I don't have a real big problem with knowing what is right to do. We have trouble doing what we know is right. Is that right? Our problem is in the doing, not the knowing. We know too much. Pleasing God and doing his will, however, will not shelter you from temptation. It didn't make Jesus exempt. In this text, we have a perfect snapshot of how strategic Satan's temptations really are. Notice the selective timing of this temptation. First, he attacked in the midst of a powerful spiritual experience. Right? Jesus was just baptized God the Father's voice 
pronounced pleasure upon him. The Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Mark's gospel said that after this glorious statement of his father's pleasure, quote, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out to the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And it says, to be tempted by the devil. How many of you really don't like that statement? That's one of those statements in the scripture that you have to scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on here? The temptation of Christ was pivotal for without it, we would not have a Savior who could, quote, sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus had a test to undergo. And through this intense and very real experience, we now know we have a Savior who understands us when we're tempted. Who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We also understand that temptation can be resisted. Matthew seems to suggest that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert with the express purpose that he would be tempted by the devil. And some of us may have problems with that. But, you know, God sometimes allows trials and temptations to come into our lives in order to test the quality and sincerity of our relationship with him. God doesn't do the tempting. But sometimes those temptations that he allows are part of God's plan to perfect us as his children. And while God never seduces men or women to do evil, he sometimes allows us to endure these attacks. Yet, the scripture also says that he always provides the way of escape. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.13, great verse, ought to memorize it. Right? No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. Right? But God has provided, along with the temptation, a way of escape for us. The scripture says. Now you hear people misquote that verse all the time, right? God won't give you more than what you're able to handle. Ever heard that? Ever said that? It's wrong. God gives us stuff we can't handle all the time. In fact, if God didn't give us stuff we couldn't handle, we'd never rely on the Holy Spirit to handle it. He says he won't give you, he won't tempt you or allow a temptation to come into your life beyond what you're able to handle without also providing the way of escape. While Satan fully intended to lead Jesus into sin and disobedience, disqualifying him here as a perfect sacrifice, God demonstrated through this trial that Jesus was indeed worthy to become the savior of the world. This temptation from the enemy seeks to destroy and deceive. Tests from God are designed to build faith, not to derail it. And that's the difference. Through temptation, the devil aims at evil ends, leading people into sin. Through tests of faith, God seeks our ultimate good, making us aware of true spiritual character. God tests, but Satan tempts. And he often does it on the heels of a great and powerful spiritual experience. John MacArthur says, One of the great truths of life, from which even the Son of God was not exempt on earth, is that after every victory comes temptation. God's word warns, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. 
When we are most exhilarated with success, we are also most vulnerable to pride and to failure, he says. You know, we think most of the time that Satan's going to attack us when we're down and depressed, right? And he does. But he doesn't always do that. He knows that at the point of a powerful spiritual experience, there is a vulnerability to pride. Jesus' baptism here was an incredibly powerful experience. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit showed up, right? That's pretty powerful. And God made it known in no uncertain terms that he was pleased with Jesus. But then the devil stepped in. Have you ever noticed that pattern in your life? Ever felt that spiritual high after taking a bold stand for Christ? Like after being baptized or introducing someone to Jesus and then the devil attacks? How about after you've shared a great spiritual victory in your life with your small group and then the devil snares you with a sin that you thought you had under control? Now, I don't care how spiritual you are or what great thing for God you've done today. If tomorrow you're not alert to his, scre- his schemes, then the devil will step in and get you every single time. His seductions are strategic. It's happened to me after a service when I felt God really seemed to minister. I'm feeling all good about the message, and then the devil steps in. Many of you have felt it after finally getting your friends to come to church for the first time. You feel good. You think they're almost ready to receive Christ. And then the devil steps in. Gets them and you off track. His timing is selective. He not only attacked in the midst of a powerful experience here, but secondly, he attacked in the midst of beginning a great personal endeavor. What was Jesus doing here? He was getting ready to launch his ministry, his public ministry, as the Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus' baptism signified the beginning of his public ministry. For 30 years, he lived in a town and worked as a carpenter. And now as he begins his personal ministry, the most vital ministry that the world has ever known, then the devil comes and visits Friends, I want to tell you something right now. The devil wants to disqualify you right at the starting line. Right at the beginning. And if he can do that, you're no threat. Why do you think Satan works so hard on kids and on teens and on newlyweds and on young pastors and on new believers and on new elders and on new ministries? He wants to disqualify them by sidetracking them from the main issue. What's the main issue? The main thing is to do God's will. Glorify God by doing his will. Where are you right now? At the beginning of a new phase of ministry maybe in your life? Are you prepared to be nailed by the devil? Are you on the alert? Now, I'm not asking for a confrontation, but I'm well aware that one may occur. The truth is that the devil is unrelenting. His attacks hit hard. 
They strike deep and they threaten to kill. His timing is selective. He attacked Jesus in the midst of a powerful spiritual experience. He attacked him in the midst of a great personal endeavor. And he will do the same thing to you and to me and to your family and to this church. His seductions are strategic and his timing is selective, but it doesn't end there. He attacked Jesus in the midst of great physical exhaustion. Again, look at verse 3. Verses 2 and 3. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Interesting. Following an intense time of prayer and fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus, about to embark on this mission which, for which he had been born, after 30 years as a Galilean carpenter, he was making a midlife career change. Right? Kind of similar to what we do. And then the devil intruded. Now we react differently to temptation when we're physically and emotionally exhausted, don't we? Some of us find we are weak when we're under too much pressure. Others, when there's not enough pressure. Unlike us, our enemy is very, very patient. He's willing to wait it out until you and I are at our weakest point. Notice what verse 2 says here. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The devil didn't attack Jesus during the fast. That was when Jesus was least vulnerable. It was after the fast was completed. When he was physically hungry and emotionally spent after this intense time of spiritual focus. Friends, please beware. Satan has messed up many godly servants at the point of physical and emotional exhaustion following an intense time of ministry. Great example of this is in 1 Kings chapter 19 and Elijah. Remember Elijah? He had just confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he came out the victor, right? God came out the victor. The next time we talk and we see Elijah, we find him running away from Jezebel and hiding out in a cave. Tempted to go down the downward spiral of depression. It's when we're physically and emotionally weak that our spiritual and moral resistance is often compromised. When you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're lonely or sick, you tend to be more susceptible and vulnerable to anything that may bring relief. And then the devil comes along and offers you relief. Right? Tired, lonely, sick, hungry. That's when you need to stay away from your computer. That's when you need to stay away from the man or the woman at work who seems to understand you better than your spouse does. That's when you need to pick up your Bible and put down the drink. The first thing we ought to remember about the enemy's strategy is that his timing is selective. Second thing is that his tactics are systematic. Look at verses 
3 and following with me. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. His tactics here, very systematic if you, if you pick this text apart. He's not going to easily give up, is he? the enemy of our souls. He has this systematic approach to temptation that he has employed since the beginning of time. He's still using the same tactics today. Why? Because they, they work. You're absolutely right. Because they work. In this passage, the devil systematically approaches Jesus on three main fronts through which he attempts to seduce him into sin. Rest assured, he will utilize the same kind of tactics upon you and me. What are they? First of all, he tempts us to depart from the will of God. That's his first attempt. To get us to depart from the will of God. Verses, verse 3 and 4. If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, Satan's temptations are not just perfectly timed, but they're perfectly aimed. He's appealing to the Lord's circumstances here. Jesus is not the only hungry one here, by the way. Satan is equally hungry. He was seeking to devour Jesus, just like Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8. If you are the son of God, Satan says. Now this, by the way, isn't a statement calling into question Jesus' position as the son of God. This is not a question. This is a taunt. Literally, the statement could more properly re be translated like this. Since you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's not if you are the son of God, prove it to me. No, Satan's smarter than that. Actually, in the Greek grammar, it's called a first-class conditional clause. And it means it's stating a fact. Since you are the son of God, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. He was daring Christ to capitalize on his identity. As author Ken Geyer says, the temptation is not to make Jesus doubt himself. It's to make Jesus depend on himself. Did you get that? Jesus was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And he could have turned the stones into bread. But he would have been reacting to his circumstances and departing from what God wanted. How he would have used his own power to serve his own selfish ends. 
Isn't that our, our temptation too? Isn't it? Isn't it what the devil attempts to get us to do? Instead of waiting on the Father to provide for Christ's needs, the devil suggests that Jesus do it himself. And we do that too. All the time. After all, there's nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry, right? And Jesus surely had the power to do it. Why not satisfy himself? What would have been wrong with it? Why should he starve in the wilderness? Here's the key. It is absolute submission and trust in God's will that Satan is out to shatter in us. He wants to shatter our trust. He wants to shatter our submission to God's will. Why should we wait for God when we can easily get what we want when we want it? Right? We're so accustomed to instant gratification that we have a hard time seeing what would have been wrong with Jesus doing what was suggested here. What Christ did was prove that he was not interested in satisfying himself, but in satisfying his Father first. You see, if Jesus had caved in and got himself out of this situation, what might he have done in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember the prayer? Take this cup from me, Father. I don't want to go through this. That was Jesus' desire. Had he caved in the desert, he may have caved there. Because we're going to find later on that after Satan stopped his temptations here in the wilderness, the next time I think that we, he shows up to tempt Jesus is in the garden. And we'll see that later. But if he caved in here, he could have caved in in Gethsemane or on the cross. Christ, as Chuck Swindoll writes, passes up the tempting bread of immediate satisfaction for the more lasting food of obeying the Father's will. Jesus' answer to the temptation was to live by God's word and to do his will. So he answers in three words, right? The, the three words that are his mantra here. What are they? It is written. It is written. And it's incredibly significant to me that the very first recorded statement of Jesus as he began his public ministry is an assertion of the absolute authority of Scripture. First three words. It is is written. If there's any doubt as to the primacy of the word of God as it relates to a person's life or ministry, these words of Jesus should dispel it. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me. His philosophy never changed, ever. It was always God's will first, not his own, no matter what the circumstances were in his life. I know that's not true in my life. Is it true in yours? I want it to be true. I desire it to be true. Do you? Can you say my food is to do the will of him who sent me? Like Jesus did? Sometimes we convince ourselves too easily that something is God's will when it's really our own desire for immediate gratification. 
Instead of waiting on God to work it out, we attempt to do it ourselves. And then the devil comes. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. He seeks to get us to depart from the will of God. Secondly, he tempts us to doubt the word of God. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. He said, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you. How do we know the will of God? Tell me, how do we know the will of God, first and foremost? What's our best guess of what the will of God is in our life? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God, right? So if Satan can't get us to depart from the will of God, the next thing he's going to do is to get us to doubt the source, the Word. This is historically the key strategy of the devil. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. What did he say to Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? Satan says to Jesus, all right, if you're so hot on living by every word of God that proceeds out of his mouth, then why don't we just test it to see how much you believe it? That's what he's saying right here. Verse 5, then the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, 45 stories above the city and dares him to not only prove God's word, but some believe to reveal himself as the one and only Messiah by safely jumping off the temple in a sensational and miraculous display of power. Surely the Jews would then know that he was indeed the one sent of God to redeem Israel, right? What an incredible start to a ministry that would have been. Big entrance, right? The Jews were waiting this very, very thing. According to one scholar, on top of the roof there was a stance where every morning a priest stood with a trumpet in his hands waiting for sunrise. At the very first sign of light, he sounded the trumpet to tell men that the hour of morning sacrifice had come. Picture it now. The temple. Way up high in the corner, a man standing there sounding the trumpet as the sun comes up behind him. What better time to leap into the temple court for Jesus and amaze everyone? In one act, he would bypass all the questions, all the skepticism, all the doubt of the religious Pharisees and establishment. After all, hadn't Malachi prophesied just before Jesus came on the scene or John the Baptist came on the scene that the Lord will suddenly come into his temple in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1? So Satan taunted Jesus by even quoting scripture to him. In verse 6, he quotes, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Does it surprise you that Satan quotes scripture? Satan knows scripture, you know, better than you and I do. The problem is that he manipulates it and subtly misapplies it in any way he wants to. This quote is from Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. And he conveniently leaves out some words. The words, to guard you in all your ways after concerning you. In other words, it reads, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. According to the psalmist, the promise of protection is given only to the one who walks in obedience to the will of God. And that, conveniently, is what Satan left out. If Jesus would have jumped, he would have been challenging God to validate whether his word was indeed true. But total trust in something never has to test its trustworthiness. Only doubt puts God to the test, right? Furthermore, had Jesus jumped, it would have been an act of presumption and sensationalism. Jesus recognized this temptation for what it was exactly. He had no doubt that God's word was truth. He didn't need to rely on sensationalism to succeed in his ministry. Jesus again responded with scripture in verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. You believe God's word to the point where you don't have to tempt God to act in proving it? Do you? Satan strategically and systematically tempts us to depart from the will of God, to doubt the word of God, and thirdly, he attempts to divert our worship from God to anything else. Just divert it from God. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The first two temptations were almost incidental to this one. We can usually see these coming, right? Those first two. But this is the one that always subtly gets us every time. This is what Satan wants from you more than anything else. He wants your loyalty, your compliance, your acquiescence, ultimately your worship. Because every time you and I succumb to the devil's temptation to sin, rather than submit ourselves to God's word, we attribute more worth to Satan than we do to God. Is that right? Amen. And what does that amount to? When we attribute worth to something, what do we do? Worship it. And when we attribute more worth to what Satan is tempting us with than to God we worship ultimately something other than God. We serve Satan's ends rather than God's purposes. And friends, the scripture is clear. You cannot serve two masters. Can't do it. Satan doesn't expect us to participate in a black mass, you know, in order to gain our allegiance. He doesn't. All he needs to do is to get us to bypass God's will a little bit. To doubt God's word a little bit. and then to be loyal to something else. He offered Jesus a shortcut here to bypass the cross, the scepter without the suffering. All he had to do was simply turn his back on God for one split second and genuflect in Satan's general direction. That's all he had to do. Nothing major. One little shortcut and Christ would be king without the cross. But Christ would not submit Thank God. 
That one small step from the Son of Man would have resulted in one giant fall for mankind. Amen? It would have been irreparable, irreversible. Thank God Jesus would not compromise. How often do we? You know you're tempted in the same way. I'm tempted in the same way. Shortcut here, compromise there. How often does Satan ask us to simply wink at God and bow to the world? And how often do we willingly submit to it? John MacArthur lays it out plainly. He says he tempts each of us in the same way. Why set your standards so high? What's the use? You can get what you want by cutting a corner here or shading the truth there. Why wait for heavenly reward when you can have what you want now? Self-will, he says, is Satan's will, and therefore, by definition, the opposite of God's will, which is for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's God's will. Satan is a counterfeiter, he says. He offers what seems to be the same as what God offers, and his price is much cheaper. God wants you to prosper, doesn't he? Satan asks. Well, I'll give you prosperity a lot sooner for a lot less. Just turn your head a little at questionable practices. Give in when it's advantageous. Don't be a prude. Follow the crowd. The basic argument is always the form of the idea that the end justifies the means. But Satan is also the father of lies, he concludes. What he really demanded in the wilderness was Jesus' own soul. Jesus saw right through the the cunning, seductive strategy of the enemy. He knew that Satan's price is always higher than he leads us to believe. It is, isn't it? It's always higher. He knew that his promises were always less than he delivers. Do you know that? While back... A book was written that just kind of ran the gamut of the bestseller list and propelled this author into stardom, so to speak. Donald Miller wrote the book Blue Like Jazz, and everybody read it. It's a great book. In that book, he has something that I think is very apropos to wrap this message up. Donald Miller writes, I think the things that we want most in life, the things we think will set us free, are not the things we need. He said, I wrote a children's story about this idea, but it's not really for children. I'm going to tell you that children's story right now, and you'll see the images. Here's the story. There once was a rabbit named Don Rabbit. Don Rabbit went to Stumptown Coffee every morning. One morning at Stumptown, Don Rabbit saw a sexy carrot. And Don Rabbit decided to chase sexy carrot. But sexy carrot was very fast. And Don Rabbit chased sexy carrot all over Oregon and all over America, all the way to New York City. And Don Rabbit chased Sexy Carrot all the way to the moon. And Don Rabbit was very, very tired. 
But with one last burst of strength, Don Rabbit lunged at Sexy Carrot, and Don Rabbit caught Sexy Carrot. And the moral of the story is that if you work hard, stay focused, and never give up, you will eventually get what you want in life. Unfortunately, shortly after this story was told, Don Rabbit choked on the carrot and died. So the second moral of the story is, sometimes the things we want most in life are the things that will kill us. Is that right? Donald Miller concludes, and that's the tricky thing about life, really, the thing we want most is the thing that will kill us. Unless, of course, that thing is Jesus Christ and God's will. Satan knows how to make us want stuff, doesn't he? He knows how to make us want stuff bad. And you can put anything in the place of sexy carrot. It could be a new car, a new house, a new job, a new wife. Whatever you put in there, Satan knows how to make us want it bad. He says, I like to think that I do things for the right reasons, but I don't. I do things because I do or don't love doing them. Being honest. Because of sin, because I am self-addicted, living in the wreckage of the fall, my body, my heart, and my affections are prone to love things that kill me. Jesus gives us the ability to love the things we should love. The things of heaven. And when people who follow Jesus love the right things, they help create God's kingdom on earth. And that is something beautiful. Satan's timing is selective and his tactics are systematic. His goal is to get you and me to depart from the will of God, to doubt the word of God, and to divert our worship from God. But he can be silenced. Jesus, fed up with this game, dismissed him again with the solid words of Scripture. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Comes out of Deuteronomy 6. And then the devil, it says, left him. One of the other Gospels says, then the devil left him and waited for an until an opportune time. You can resist him just like Jesus did. How can we stand against him? How can we resist him? Well, that's our topic next week. We'll give you some practical things to chew on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that ultimately and finally, you are the way that we can stand against him and resist him. By falling upon you for our help and depending upon you for our strength. When it's all said and done, Lord, our loyalty deserves to be with you and you alone. Help us, our Father, to recognize the temptations when they come this week, when they come in the next few moments. When we're tempted to grumble or complain about this or that or the other thing. When we're tempted to be angry with our friends or family members or spouses. God in heaven, let us submit ourselves to you. Let us remember your word. Let us follow it. 
closely and remain alert. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask it. And in Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.